Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They're veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope's Tackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Randy, thank you for being on the show. We're trying something a little different today. We are recording uh, outside. It's a a beautiful, warm day in uh, sunny Northern California, so we might have a little background. But uh, Randy and I wanted to enjoy uh, the nice outdoors while we could. And we're sipping a little whiskey. It is not peanut butter whiskey. Sorry to say Brent's not here. Randy, we have a running joke because Brent doesn't drink whiskey, my co-host. But he called me one day all excited because he found a whiskey that he liked and it was peanut butter whiskey. Oh my gosh. And I reject peanut butter as a whiskey unless they want to sponsor the show. And then I love peanut butter whiskey. But... (laughs) That I, always helps. I think peanut butter whiskey is like junior college whiskey. Like it's like cute, but it's not a real whiskey. I agree. Uh, whiskey's good, and so is peanut butter, but not together. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think that they should be mixed. I agree. So, Randy, thanks for being here. Uh, we've known each other a long time, actually, off and on over the years. <clears throat> so, you uh, currently are on your second career, correct? And when I met you, you were working for the DEA, correct? And now you work for Nick Rick. That is, that is very true. So I, I wanted to ask you to come on and talk a little bit about your leadership lessons learned because you've traveled all over the world and a little bit about what Nick Rick does and uh, the importance of fusion centers, which I think, uh, at least in my experience, anecdotally are underutilized where I worked. I, I agree 110%. So tell me a little bit about your past, just for those people that don't know you, um, and how you started. How did you end up going to the DEA? Uh, good question. So we'll, we'll back up to, uh, we're going to back up to 1987, if that's okay. I was a sophomore at the University of Alabama uh, studying criminal justice. It was my second year. I just 
quit football. I had walked on at the University of Alabama and and made the football team. And one day I got my report card and I had a 1.75 GPA and realized it was time to start looking at other stuff because I knew I wasn't going to play in the NFL, nor did I want to. Uh, But um, an FBI agent, uh, Coach Bill Curry at the time, brought an FBI agent to come talk to the team about the perils of gambling and drugs and, and crime and so forth. So I talked to him at the end of the meeting and asked him, I want to be a federal agent. What's the best route for that? And he gave me some really good advice. He said, I suggest that you join a local police department. And uh, so upon graduating uh, the University of Alabama, I joined Atlanta Police Department, did that for five years and uh, got hired with DEA in uh, 1998. My first assignment after Quantico was El Paso, Texas, where uh, working on the border was very uh, fun and very interesting. Uh, Shortly after that, after five years, I say shortly after it went by very quick, um, I got the position of the marijuana eradication coordinator for the state of Hawaii in Honolulu, which was an awesome experience working with a lot of different local law enforcement agencies on eradicating marijuana. I promoted in to a HIDA task force. And a year after that promotion, I got promoted to the resident agent in charge of the Santa Rosa DEA district office. I'm sorry, resident office. And we covered the Northern California district, which goes all the way up to Del Norte County and went down to the Golden Gate Bridge. So we had seven counties that were in our EOR at that time. Uh, After doing that for four years, I went to DEA's OPR, which is basically internal affairs. And after doing one year there, I was very fortunate and got promoted to the assistant regional director position for DEA's Middle East region. Uh, After three months, Marcus, I was thrust into the acting regional director position which was like, are you kidding me? I've only been here three months, but I had a lot of uh, uh, confidence from the uh, upper echelon of DEA at that time that I could do the job. And I did that for a year, which was awesome. And uh, I had Kabul country office. I had Moscow, New Delhi, and Dubai, and Ankara, Istanbul, Turkey, to name a few. And then... um, I retired in September of 2019 and I went in the private sector for a year or so and did some teaching and consulting, which was really good. And I think if COVID hadn't hit, I'd probably still be doing that. And then as life always does, um, opportunities present, present themselves and, uh, the deputy director position at the Northern California regional intelligence center became available and I interviewed and, was fortunate enough to get that position a year ago this month. And that's where I'm at currently. Um, I have a terrorism liaison officer outreach program. I have the cybersecurity team. I have a private sector engagement team. And I also have strategy infrastructure and analysis team as well. So uh, we have a very robust program at the Fusion Center at the NICRIC. And uh, like you alluded to earlier, uh, a lot of times people don't utilize us the way we, we should be utilized. Yeah, let's talk a, talk a little about that for, give me an example of a, a successful 
I wouldn't say where in the country are we doing it right or where in the state we're doing it right, but I feel it's it's often underutilized. So so maybe explain a little bit about NICRIC and what they do and how we could better capitalize on these fusion centers to share intel and leverage uh, each other. A lot of people have been in narcotics and they understand what Wizen is or LA Clear. Like and 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 that's a really basic function of making sure we're sharing information and not hitting the same house and arresting each other and you know kind of that deconfliction component. So that I, I would say that's probably the basic like least amount of service we can provide, and then up to uh, counterterrorism and and what that looks like. Yeah, and that's a that's a good question. Um, unfortunately nationwide there are a lot of law enforcement agencies that don't utilize a fusion center and quite frankly marcus a lot of them don't know what a fusion center is um there currently are 80 fusion centers located all over our country and basically a lot of fusion centers got their start after 9 11 um, with the uh, creation of department of homeland security and so forth uh, and what we do at the fusion center whether it be at the NICRIC or any other fusion center, we're set up to basically be that conduit between local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies. And I say law enforcement, it also goes to emergency management services and so forth. So within the NICRIC, we have over 80 different local, state, and federal agencies represented within our fusion center and basically if you're familiar with the task force concept it's just a bigger version of the task force so i told you i had those four programs i oversee those four programs so in the tlo program which is a terrorism liaison officer outreach program i've got 11 state and local law enforcement officers to include a fire representative as well from san francisco fire department and what they do is they go out and they do the outreach, they do the liaison for the fusion center and uh, get to know the state and local agencies in our AOR, which encompasses 15 counties all the way up to Del Norte, which goes all the way down to San Benito. So those guys are out there preaching our mission that, you know, intelligence sharing is important. Uh, indicators of terrorism are important. Uh, the training that we put on significant act, uh, activity reporting, uh, suspicious activity reporting, and so forth. Um, it, it needs to get out there. It needs to, to get that message out there because I can give you some success stories as well. But, um, you know, just by filling out a suspicious activity report um, could save somebody's life. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. They had a situation in Petaluma PD not too long ago, a couple of months ago, where a subject had OD'd and uh, they did a follow-up search warrant in his house and there was a lot of drugs found. I say a lot of drugs, being paraphernalia, stuff like that. And also uh, some threatening type of manifestos and stuff like that. Uh, and they kicked out a SAR. Petaluma PD, and that's getting that information out there that the subject at this said location was possibly looking at doing harm to someone other than himself. And uh, we have a threat to life 
program where we get responses uh, from people that are looking to do harm to themselves or others. We get this from the private sector. Could be, it could be uh, PlayStation, it could be Google, it could be Facebook, and they notify us when they see something alarming. And we put coordination together between the local law enforcement agency that is in that area of where that threat is coming from. And they basically do an intervention with the one that's making the threat and the one that's receiving the threat. And I can't tell you how many times that's been successful as far as uh, possibly saving harm to somebody. And, uh, you know, we do a great job at the NICRIC of providing investigative support to agencies that don't have that component in their department. You know, some of the smaller departments that don't have an investigative analyst. And, you know, quite frankly, as we talked about all fairs, some of the bigger departments currently don't have that because, as we all know, there's a shortage of not only police officers, but there's also a shortage of intel analysts as well. So we try to provide that gap that's often out there, unfortunately, uh, between the public sector and the private sector and the intel community and the law enforcement community. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of times people think just because they're a police officer that they're also a good intel analyst, but that's not necessarily the case. We know that I would rather have an intel analyst working with me any day over another law enforcement officer because I, I have a law enforcement career, but I want that intel analyst to be able to put the, the pieces together for my case. And uh, I remember back in my days when I was a working agent with DEA, I always involved our intel analysts. I often took them on the road with me instead of my co-case agent. Oh, we're very familiar with the analyst oh, yeah. doing the agent's job for him. We totally get that. Yeah. No, and, I'm kidding. But, no. but they do. They crunch all that data and it comes out and makes tells a story. No doubt. And yeah. they are. They're the smartest ones in the room. And I'm saying that as law enforcement. And uh, we've got some very bright young intel analysts at the NICRIC that are focusing on the, the PMFs right now, the private manufactured firearms, the ghost guns. And we've got some working on human trafficking. And uh, we have all these components at the NICRIC where we have working groups where we bring in everybody that's working those crimes and uh, we share the information. It's a, it's a forum for everybody to come on a Zoom call and talk about what they're doing and where their cases are going and how we can support them. Yeah, and, and thinking about that, you look at, like, I'm in Del Norte, and I'm a patrol cop working weekends, and I start getting ghost guns off people. But I don't know where they're coming from. And so I can reach out, and and you have that ability to see statewide, nationwide, okay, it's that kind of gun. It's looking like this. It's coming out of Sacramento. Right. It's coming out of San Francisco. It's coming out of Redding. Okay, let's let's look at the data, see where the data drives us. And you can provide that intel as well as help with the investigation portion. No doubt. And you mentioned Wizen earlier. Uh, <clears throat> we partner with Wizen. In fact, Wizen handles our intake calls after 5 p.m. And uh, Wizen is unfortunately another asset that a lot of people are not using. Um, and I know this for a fact because our because of our partnership with Wizen, 
I uh, request every year, and it's getting ready to come up at the end of July. Um, I get a list from Wizen of all the law enforcement agencies, NRA, OR, and there's a couple hundred of them that I get the printout of deconflictions and so forth. And uh, it's alarming to see some of the major police departments in the AOR that we have that goes from San Benito all the way up to Del Norte. And um, it's shocking to see that a lot of these bigger departments do not deconflict. And that's a sore subject with us because everybody, for some reason, Marcus, in, in my law enforcement career, I've tried to, I've worked my tail off to work with everybody I can um, and bring everybody in because when I was with DEA, we're the experts in drugs, but we're not the experts in guns. We don't know the neighborhoods like the sheriff's department or the local police officers do. So it's very important to bring them in. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of good success stories where state, local and federal agencies working together. And then, unfortunately, you see some cases where um, they're not working together. And I know several situations, I'm not going to name the departments, but um, where they've been in one department has been in another jurisdiction and it was never deconflicted. And, you know, hey, devil's advocate, I'll play it. If you don't want to share your case or let another agency know, you know that you're in their jurisdiction, whatever, I don't condone that. But at the same time, we don't want to have a cop on cop situation. And those have happened before. And uh, I, I think it's very selfish when law enforcement does not communicate with other jurisdictions that they're going to be in that jurisdiction, following up on an investigation or doing a knock and talk or something like that. Yeah, it it's organizational ego. It and, is. And the public sees through that. They do. We might have got away with that back in the 60s, but not since then. No, you're and, right. And, and we can't afford to do that. And you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, you know, ego, unfortunately, you know, I was a local police officer. I was a federal agent and we all have one. If it, you know, you're lying to yourself or you're lying to somebody else telling them that you don't, but it's important to keep it in check and remember that we're all on the same team. And like I said, as a, as a working police officer out in the field or agent investigator, you would think that you'd want to seek the assistance and the resources of other agencies and make your case better. Maybe it can be, you know, taken back to New York or another country. I mean, we had a case in Novato uh, back in 2018 or 19 that originated from a money seizure in Marin County, which was tied to Hezbollah. So just for those of you listening, what's the population in Novato? It's in Marin County, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. I cannot afford a house there. And you know what, Marcus? I don't know the population in Nevada. It's pretty small. It's pretty small. It's not a lot of crime. Right. Less than seven homicides a year. Yep. Um, and that's just off the top of my head. So, Nevada folks, please don't be offended. It's a great place to live, but not some place you would think that you could tie street-level narcotics all the way back to Hezbollah. Exactly. 
And, you know, what I try to do in my position is just educate as many law enforcement officials as I can on our capabilities. And uh, I'm a member of the Sonoma County Chiefs Association that uh, they made me a, an associate member, which I was real happy about because I was actually in that association during my time here at Santa Rosa as a DEA resident agent in charge. So it was good connecting with a lot of those guys. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of turnover in the command structure of departments and federal agencies and so forth. So I find myself constantly re-educating people and, you know, they remember Nick Rick and Wizen and Epic. There's another one. Uh, they remember that when they were working as a, a street cop or an agent, but when they start moving up the chain of command, sometimes they get burdened with administrative stuff and, and, and don't get me wrong. It's a very large task in running a large department or agency, but we got to remember where we came from and uh, make sure that everybody that works for us have the tools that they need to get the job done. Yeah, we we talk about that a lot here where we're we're talking about the the struggle with operational the farther you go higher up in the chain of command, the less operational exposure you have. True. So you understand the big picture, but sometimes it's those little operational things that will get you in trouble. Right. And one of them is is sharing that information, making sure you're working together. Um Something I wanted to ask you about, you, you've had a lot of leadership positions and, and my experience in my brief career was that the Fed guys that were good all started as street cops because they had that perspective that if you start on your own, and it's not discounting folks that didn't, but they have challenges. And in that street cop perspective, kind of like uh, I, I started uh, in my job, I never worked in the jail, but I was young. Um, didn't have a lot of life experience. If I had worked in the jail, even for just one or two years, my education would have been twice as fast and how to talk to criminals, how to read people. So I kind of look at it like that. Like you can still do it and be effective, but you, you have a stumbling block. And you, you, the interesting part about your career is you have a local perspective. I met you when you were in the DEA. Do you remember the first time we met? By chance? Yeah, I do. You do? I do. It was outside. In fact, I just met with two of your cohorts and... uh, We met for breakfast. Yeah. But we met before that breakfast. We did. You pulled (laughs) pulled me over, I I I think, or actually my car had stalled out. Uh, And and I'm like, I I told my wife, who's a Santa Rosa PD officer, I'm like, yeah, somebody helped me out today, but I couldn't remember your name at that time. (laughs) And then here we are, we're, we're almost neighbors now. And like you said, we've always gotten together to talk about stuff. And, and <laughs> it was pretty funny, though. Yeah, it was. We do have that story. Just driving around in some hoopty with expired yeah, reds. Exactly. Was it expired? I can't so you that. were. Uh, oh, now you're really throwing me I, out there. I don't want to. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you were driving in a neighborhood where your particular race and kind didn't fit in. Yeah, it's. Uh, and so I saw a guy driving a car that didn't match where he belonged. And I thought that's a load car. Oh my this gosh. guy is a money car and he's coming into town that's in a funny. place he doesn't belong. <laughs> Little did I know that I was buying, I was actually pulling over a guy who was a money car. It was yeah. just a fed money car. That's funny. Yeah. And yeah. then we have breakfast like and 10 we, minutes later. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then, and then now look at us, we're neighbors. Um, 
Yeah, uh, you'd mentioned my perspective having the local experience and the federal experience, and I, I, I'll be completely honest with you. I don't know what kind of DEA agent I was. I'm based on what I've been told. I was told I was a pretty good one, and I led by example, which makes me feel good because that's what we all should do. But to your point, I was a better DEA agent because of my time in Atlanta as a police officer. Um, as you know, being a police officer, a sheriff, when you have that street experience, it's like having a master's degree in life. Um, you get to read people, you get to know people, and uh, you just see things that other people don't see. Uh, now, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people that were in federal law enforcement that I worked with that did not have the prior law enforcement experience. Some of them struggled and some of them were outstanding. Uh, but you're right. The ones that I know that have had that local law enforcement experience has really paid dividends for them in their federal law enforcement career. And I'll tell you, um, in my position now at the Nick Rick, I can walk into a room and to your point, I always let everybody know I was Atlanta police first and then DEA. And uh, I see the room sort of relax a little bit because they can't say, well, what's this former Fed going to tell us to do or, or, or right. so forth. And that, and unfortunately, that does happen a lot. But they know they can't do that to me. I've been fortunate. I've worked with some great Fed folks. Some just humble, down to earth, let's work together and get this done. Right. Here's what I bring. Like I bring some resources. I bring some federal prosecution. I bring some mandatory sentencing exactly. and I bring some money Yep. and I need you to bring this. I've also been involved in the operation where I was briefed by the feds and they said, Hey, here's what we're going to do. And I go, okay, well, why don't we just do a car stop on this guy and take care of this? And then three years later, what did we do? A car stop on the same guy doing the same shit. And we're like, that's a fed case, three years, but that's from a patrol person's perspective. Right? So talk to me a little bit. You have a unique experience because when you talk about let's say terrorism or or domestic terrorism you really have a global perspective you mentioned this the other day and i thought man we really need to talk about this and i don't know what you can say and what you can't say but you went over and involved in all these countries that are highly active in terrorism you know different levels and yet the average street cop very rarely is exposed to that unless a major event takes place. And I think about like Lodi, mm -hmm. right? Lodi is a classic example. Town just outside of Stockton, um, definitely busy, really good coppers there, but no place anyone would go, you know, we need to watch out for Lodi. That's probably the next place for a terrorist attack. No one's going to think that. And yet we had that. And so Kind of give me your perspective with all your experience being overseas, dealing with all these other countries and having the, how drugs come into our country and why. For me, it really, the two takeaways I got, and you only made one comment, by the way, was how important this weekend graveyard street cop taking drugs off the street really is in, uh, I won't call it the war on terror, but absolutely impacts everything even though you think it doesn't 
because these drugs aren't coming from our country. And there's a reason why they're coming here. And I don't know that we talk enough about that. The, the big picture contributions that, you know, for my town, we had a case where we had a gang guy flip an informant that led to hits being from Pelican Bay. And then that case went all across California and was RICO prosecuted and really demonstrated to my organization how everybody's interconnected and how this organized crime works. But unless you work for the DEA or do some of these bigger cases, or you work in a large metropolitan area, you might not see that bigger picture. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences with that and how these other countries are have a strategy of how they're making money off American and also destroying us at the same time? Wow, that's a very this is a big mouthful, huh? Yeah, that's a big one. I'm like, ooh, um, great question, and I'll try to answer it as best as I can with trying to break it down a little bit. Um, first of all, like you said, unless it's meth being manufactured here in California, which really doesn't happen anymore, or you know, there are still the marijuana groves that are nationwide based on you know the minimization we'll call it of of marijuana as far as prosecution and and state marijuana laws now um but every time that fentanyl was seized here or cocaine or you know any kind of methamphetamine that's not you know again the labs are not here in california like they used to be that crossed the border somewhere and um you know, it goes back to my time in El Paso, where I remember being in a meeting. And at that time, you know, I'm dating myself back in the late 1990s, U.S. Customs put out a report that we, law enforcement, only seized 10% of the drugs that were coming into our country. So think about that, only 10%. And I'm sitting there going, well, how do we know that that it's 10% because, you know, with the addiction problems we have, um, the stuff that we don't seize or on a warrant or at the border or whatever. Um, I go back to something that it's another stat that may be hard to prove, but they say that the U.S. consumes 80% of the illegal drug trade and being overseas i i do believe that and wow that's a big stat yeah because overseas you know in the middle eastern countries that i was privileged to work in and some of the you know countries in eurasia and so forth they don't have the drug problem we have now they do have they do have addiction problems and so forth but it's not on the scale of the U.S. So everybody talks about, you know, cut off the demand and therefore you'll cut off the supply, which is absolutely correct. But, you know, there's so many different schools of thought now with treatment and uh, addiction. And uh, we need to get those people the help. We need to get those people the help that they need. Um, but at the same time, the fight with 
the Colombian cartels need to continue. The fight with the Mexican cartels need to continue. Uh, as we all know, <clears throat> our country exited Afghanistan very quickly. Uh, much like Iraq, uh, there's been a vacuum left in Afghanistan. Um, without getting into it too much, uh, I have friends that were fortunate enough to escape Afghanistan, their home country. Um, I received some intel recently that methamphetamine manufacturing has increased significantly since we left Afghanistan. And I was asked recently, well, why is that? Because it's a big opium and poppy country, obviously, but methamphetamine is so much cheaper to manufacture. So um, I got a feeling that we're going to be seeing a big increase in that here real soon, too. Um, and going back to the street cop making a difference, you know, if you seize 10 fentanyl pills, if you seize uh, a half a pound of meth, work with somebody that we've been talking about earlier that can help you expand that case. And we've said it, every agency is short of personnel right now. This is a chance for you to be a hero in your department where you're working with a federal agent, whether it be DEA, FBI, or whoever, that has some extra databases that you don't have access to, that maybe have some funding that you don't have access to, to make that case bigger. Um, there's a good chance if you're getting half a pound of meth, you hit a good drug trafficking organization. That case might be an OCDF case if you let some people run their databases and see if there's other players involved. And that's where, you know, I, I think it gets lost in translation sometimes because people think, oh, I got to just seize this and arrest my guy and I've got my my next call to go to and so forth. But, you know, we're not we're not talking about. We're not talking enough about some of those what people think might be a smaller seizure or something like that. And again, that's where Wizen comes in. That's where Nick Rick comes in. Uh, the El Paso Intelligence Center that I had when I was the working agent, I was in El Paso. I would go to the El Paso Intelligence Center often and use their, re use their resources. They had an FAA agent that showed me how to interdict planes at small airports. And, you know, all these airports that we have in Northern California, Marcus, what are we missing? Um, so, you know, just reaching out to some of these deconfliction entities, some of these police officers that feel like maybe they don't have the time to work it up or have the, the NARC unit or the vice unit to work it up can be their best ally and maybe help them get that next promotion because they can talk about this big case that they did. Um, as far as spanning the globe goes and, and as far as the terrorism aspect of it, uh, just what's happening right now with the invasion of Ukraine, um, something that I've put out there to Homeland Security that I think is going to be a factor uh, because of my time that I had in Turkey, um, the Ukrainians, 
the organized criminals in Ukraine, not the citizens of Ukraine, are big time arms traffickers. Look where they're at on the map. Look at the, the countries that are close to the Black Sea. And they're supplying Syria and a lot of those, uh, let's say, conflicts with arms out of Russia and so forth. Um, I'm going to go back to the 1980s. Uh, crime is cyclical. Uh, we saw a lot of AKs, Russian-made weapons show up on our shores back in the early 80s during the big mass of cocaine uh, influx. And uh, I got a feeling we're going to see that again when this, when Ukraine settles down, hopefully for the best where they can keep their independence. But I made this comment that right now, every organized criminal in Ukraine are grabbing those weapons off the dead Russian soldiers. They're stockpiling them. They're burying them. And unfortunately, they're going to see other countries. And actually, Homeland Security ran with that intel note and actually has gotten some traction on it. So um, I like thinking ahead and seeing how we can educate ourselves of things that we know might be coming our way or think they might be coming our way. Um, you know, fentanyl is a massive epidemic right now and basically destroying our society. Um, and uh, we call them overdoses, but we need to start calling them murders because the Chinese government uh, is playing us like a toy right now. Uh, they have the strongest economy right now. Um, with what's going on in Ukraine, um, with the pandemic, uh, hopefully coming to an end here real soon, they've put a big kink in our country for the last two years and disrupted a lot of lives. Um, I want everybody to know that fentanyl is manufactured in China. Uh, it gets to Mexico because fentanyl is not illegal in Mexico. Ephedrine, pseudoephedrine is not illegal in Mexico. So I, I, I tell people that because we are the superpower, uh, we are the freest country in the world. There's other countries that want to see us fail. And those governments are China and Russia. And uh, Iran wants us completely off the face of the earth. So we do have global threats out there. They're not trying to kill us, meaning the government of China and Russia, but they want to see our democracy fail so they can take the lead as a superpower in the world. They don't like democracies. Uh, obviously, look at both governments and uh, they don't like what we're doing. And uh, a lot of it is grandstanding to keep us happy and so forth. Um, obviously, China's a little bit less brazen than the Russian government is. So, uh, but, you know, they are, they're threats that we're going to continue to have to deal with in the future. And, uh, you know, we need strong leadership to uh, combat those threats, whether they be economically, militarily, 
or so forth. Yeah, I just thought it was good to, sometimes you, you're in your town, wherever it is you work, and it's easy to get stuck in your your perspective, right? You're working every day, you're running in your hamster wheel, you're not sure you're making a difference. And for me, my little bit of experience in, in this job, nobody makes more of a difference than patrol. Mm-hmm. I agree. And yet, patrol is the one that feels like they make the least amount of difference because of the repetition of the same problems. Right. But, but they get the most exposure and that's why they make the most impact and investigations just support them. Now we might take that ball and run with it across the state, across the country, or in your case, across borders, but it generally starts with that B cop. Can I give you two awesome examples of that? Charlie Hanger. Name sound familiar? Okay. Yeah. Charlie Hanger was the Oklahoma State Trooper that stopped Timothy McVeigh. He just got the largest domestic terrorist off the street by simply noticing that the tag was expired. Uh, Right there. A beat cop or beat trooper doing his job. Another example, and this is one of my favorites, um, I don't know the deputy's name, um, but the 1996 Olympic bomber, the abortion clinic bomber, Eric Rudolph, and I was working Atlanta PD during the 96 Olympics. I heard the bomb go off. Um, he wasn't caught or arrested by a federal agency that stood up there and gave the press conference. He was caught by a deputy sheriff in North Carolina looking at this subject, pilfering through a dumpster, and said to himself, something just doesn't seem right about this guy. And he nabbed a domestic terrorist. To your point, these were two beat deputies, beat troopers, just doing their job. And you just said it a lot of times that gets... Uh, for whatever reason, people feel like they can't make that impact that somebody else can maybe as an investigator. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you right now, God bless this guy, Mark Collins. He was one of my umbrella cars in Atlanta. An umbr- umbrella car basically meant, you know, backup car. Mark never aspired to be a sergeant, lieutenant, or anything like that. He was a patrol officer, and he was a leader. And all he did was handle his beat. Uh, when he had to cover for somebody, handle the calls and back people up. But the guy was a leader. And uh, I'll never forget, he kicked a federal agent off his beat because that federal agent, like you said, possibly didn't have local law enforcement experience and started wrestling up some of the locals on that beat. And he sent them to the precinct and said, don't come to my beat and F it up again. Because that... <laughs> agency was looking for a fugitive so uh you know like you can be a difference maker handling those 911 calls and and i'll be honest with you there's a lot of times i look back on my career i impacted a lot of lives as an atlanta police officer maybe just as much as i did as a federal agent because it was that concept and mark because i had 25 911 calls a night and it was just you know it was busy and uh, 
I impacted a lot of people on my beat because I always showed up and treated everybody <clears throat> with respect until they disrespected me. And, you know, I think that's fair. And uh, I had people in those neighborhoods that I worked help me pull people off of other cops, pull people off of me. And that was simply because I treated them with the respect. And, uh, you know, we talk about it a lot. And, and, you know, not just in, we were talking about earlier with the intel sharing, and you know, cases not going anywhere. Sometimes in law enforcement, and you know this, and I'm not afraid to say it, we, we're our own worst enemies sometimes. How yes, we, we are. How we treat people, how we talk to people, how we treat and talk to other agencies. I mean, we are our own worst enemy. And uh, we're one team. And uh, I will tell you this, in all my travels overseas and all the heads of departments of police and other countries that I met with, you know, they look at us as the leaders of law enforcement. And, uh, you know, we need to act like it. <laughs> all the time you know yeah that's fair that's yeah, fair it is fair and we yeah. we just need to we need to act like we're number one um and because we are looked up to all over the world they want to be us they wanted to be dea when i was over there and uh a lot of, you know a lot of times they're doing a better job than we are because they're talking to the agencies that are within their country and uh so there's lessons to be learned no matter how long you've been in law enforcement, you know, I'm going on, I'm getting close to 30 years in this profession and I'm learning something new every day. And that's what makes this job so much fun that if you're not learning every day or you're not learning regularly, maybe it's time for you to do something else. You know, it's a, uh, it's funny cause right now there's de-policing and defunding and all this stuff. Right. But there's still people that envy being part of this community. No doubt. Because it's a tribe around the world. It is. And when you go around the world and you travel and you meet another law enforcement officer, there's a bond there that you can't get in other places. And you can't get that in the private sector as much. No doubt. And that's because it's a dedication to service, something bigger than ourselves. Right. And you see that in the military. And, and law enforcement is not the same as military. They're not trying to make it the same. But that's the commonality, dedication to service. Don't forget that. What you do, you know, matters. I never asked you this, so I'm just going to throw it out there. All the years in the DEA, which I think I love SWAT stuff. Um, it's my passion. But NARC stuff was by far the funnest because you can get the most creative and you spend the most time on surveillance, so you see the most weird stuff. Funniest thing ever happened to you? Oh, my gosh. First thing pops in your head. Funniest thing. Now, it could be a bad guy. It could be other coppers. Some of my funniest memories are other coppers doing stuff to each other. Man, that's a great question. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to take it back to my academy days because I was just sharing the story with somebody recently. Um we're human, right? When you got to go, you got to go. So uh, I'll never forget my friend and I carpooled to Atlanta Police Academy together because we sort of live close to each other. And, you know, after a long day at the academy, I'll never, you know, 
forget this, but I was sort of passed out in the passenger seat with the seat back as he was driving. And then all of a sudden I wake up and I hit him. I'm like, stop, 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 pull over, pull over. He's like, what's the matter? What's the matter? And I'm like, I got to go. He's like, where you got to go? I'm like, dude, I got to go to the bathroom, pull the damn car over. So I'll never forget him pulling off the side of the road. And I ran in to a church property with some, into some woods that were adjacent to the property. And I just, had to go got done got done and uh (laughs) after that he let everybody know the next day (laughs) and i was affectionately known as the woodsman after that (laughs) the woodsman's not bad compared to what it could have been exactly exactly (laughs) so i'm like okay everybody's gonna think that i like wearing flannel shirts or i like to hunt or i'm making you know i'm good with making (laughs) fires and uh, for campfires (laughs) and so forth but uh I don't know. That one comes to my head right now because uh, I was just talking to somebody else about that. Just great stories and over the years. And you said the camaraderie. Uh, there's nothing like it. And uh, I have relationships with people that I worked with in the Middle East. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to New Zealand uh, when I was a marijuana eradication coordinator in Hawaii because New Zealand modeled their program after ours and damn it, I had to go down there and do an assessment of what they were doing. I'm so sorry. It was such a sacrifice. It was terrible. I went down there for a week and a half and I was wined and dined and it was awesome. The people that you meet in your career, um, no matter whether it's overseas or another department, another state, it's funny how you always come back and and find their business card or find their email. And, And I'll be honest with you, that's happened to me a lot in the last year since I've been at the Nick Rick. Um, just going through, and I, I will, let me give you some advice for those who are listening. Get a Rolodex. I'm old school. Get one of those <laughs> business cards. You know, I'm going to have to explain what a Rolodex is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> they have an app. They have an app for they, that. They have now. an app for that now. Yeah, I, an app. But there's just something about having that business card holder. Yeah. And I have one. Uh, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that, but I can't tell you how many times I've gone through it and said, oh, look, there's Marcus. I, I can ask him this. Or, hey, I'm going to Colorado Springs for a couple of days. I'm going to call up Tim and see if he, you know, whatever. And you're absolutely right. There's the camaraderie you have. And, and it's not the military. It's a, a completely different mission. And the camaraderie we have in this profession is awesome. And it's unmatched. It really is. Um, that's why people watch shows about it. It's true. They, you know, they want to see the, they want to see the variety that we see, right? We don't sit in a cubicle all day, but they want to see the camaraderie and they, 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 they miss that, that that's something you don't get unless you played on a team, right? Yep. Like in high school, maybe you played on a team, but after that, there's a lot of solo stuff going on. No doubt. And that's a great analogy. Uh, when I quit football, it's funny. I, gravitated towards law enforcement because I felt like it was still competitive and it's part of a team. And I miss that team environment when I stopped playing football. And I found that in law enforcement. I found it at the local level and I found it as a federal agent as well. And I find it in the fusion center environment as well. And where did you grow up? I was born in New Jersey. And I know you can't tell by the accent I have, but I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh great place to grow up. And, uh, you know, when I my mom and dad moved to a suburb of Atlanta, when 
I went to school. And uh, so when I graduated, I wanted to get experience in a big city. I really did. And uh, I wouldn't go back and do it again. I don't think I could handle <laughs> Atlanta. In- Atlanta's pretty busy. Yeah. And, and I, I look back and go, wow, I can't believe I survived some of that stuff, you know? And uh, cause there's days where you make mistakes and like, that could have been, that could have been my day. It could have been the one. It could have been the one. And, um, so I, that was the only police department I applied for. And luckily I got hired and, uh, I do, I, I go back to my days of being a street cop that have really forged a lot of my knowledge today. So somehow there's a crow chasing us right now, but, um, the reason why I asked you where you grew up is one, you can you can still hear it, but two, football is a big deal. Oh yeah. So I grew up on in New England. Yep. And I I've lived in the southeast, and and Californians don't get football's a big deal. They don't. You you go to the southeast, football's a big deal, and you're by the time you're four or five, and you're you're a male that has any ability to carry a ball. You're playing football. Oh, no doubt. And if you don't know what the Seminoles are, or you don't know Florida State, or Alabama, or wherever it is that you live, you you better be paying attention. And if you want to drive anywhere fast, you just drive during any one of those games that's on, because there's nobody anywhere. Oh, no doubt. And Football is a big deal. No doubt. And other than the great Southern cooking and hospitality, um, if any of the listeners ever find themselves in the Southeast during football season, I don't care what school it is. They should try to score some tickets and go to a game because I've been to Super Bowl and I've been to multiple national championship games because obviously we are Alabama. We play national (laughs) championship games and the environment at a national championship college game is much different. The Super Bowl is a, is a show. It's not a game. And uh, there's just nothing better for me than college football. And quite frankly, high school football is right behind it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And high school football there is the same. It is. There's no difference. No, it's not. It's it's the show. It is. It's a big deal. Yep. It's – I I didn't – I knew that. Like, I heard it. But until I lived in Florida, I didn't really get it. And And then then you get it and it's like – it's – it is what we do here. Right. It's like a religion. <laughs> it and, is a religion. Yeah, and you, you said it. Several people have told me that, oh, I didn't realize it was this big here until I spent some time here. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, it, it's just it's a culture, much like law enforcement and everybody in that stadium, no matter what school it is, it's like they're all there rooting for their school. They're not rooting for their professional team. You know, and I, I, you know, I'll just say this. My pet peeve is when fans of pro teams say, we did this or we won this or we won that. And I go, excuse me, when, when did you play for the Raiders? Or when did you play? <laughs> we, you're not we. I don't see you. In I'm the, support. I'm the support fan. Yeah. And it's like we, uh, but when you go to a, when you go to college, you can say we, cause Hey, I spent money there. You know, I, I, I walked around that campus. I was in that stadium and as a student, I had a student ID or I played football there or tennis, whatever. You have ownership in that place. And that's that's why to me, 
the college atmosphere, no matter where you're at, is is head and tails above anything else. Yeah, it is pretty special, especially when you go to those schools. Right. Like you you go to Texas A&M and you walk around. Oh, yeah. You go to Alabama and mm-hmm. walk around. Yep. It's a different deal. Yep. Um, it, it's interesting, growing, not growing up in California, uh, California has it different than any other state I've been in mm-hmm. because the weather is so good. Yep. There's so many things you can do all year round. Right. And you go to the states where you can't do that all year round, and there's like a, I don't know how to describe it, a concentration of energy towards one or two things because you got to get them done before the season's over. Yep. Whether it's going to snow or it's just going to be rainy or it's tornadoes yep. or, or whatever it might be. And uh, you don't get that no, in, you don't. in California. Well, you know my wife. So uh, <laughs> I I have a running honeydew list. It gets bigger every month. And uh, that's just you. That just makes just, you special. No just, one else has that. Nobody just else. You. Yeah, just just me. you. And uh, <laughs> she knows not to give me anything at the beginning of football season. And she's like, well, you said you're going to do it after football season. And it just goes to the next football season. So that's what keeps me going. But uh, football, playing it, watching it. And uh, I, I throw, I don't know if you, do you remember Eddie Robinson? The coach of Grambling. Oh yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. When I played at my high school in Nashville, we were across the street from Vanderbilt University, and because my high school was located in a downtown of a big city, we didn't have a football field. So we were fortunate enough to play our home games at Vanderbilt. So we played on a that's third. A, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it was. It's pretty <laughs> cool. And um, we had a home game on a Thursday night one time, and ten. Uh, I'm sorry. Tennessee State University was hosting Grambling that Saturday. So Grambling had walked off the field before we went onto the field to do our stretching and so forth. And my mom, being my mother, is outspoken and and extroverted as she was and still is, saw Eddie Robinson and went and got his autograph for me. And he goes, what's your son's name? And she said, Randy. And I still have it. And this is, you know, 40 years old or, or 38 years old or whatever. But it was it was quick and to the point. Randy, football teaches lessons of life. Eddie Robinson, that was it. That was it. Yeah, and it's very true. And, you know, I, I told you why I think I gravitated towards law enforcement because that team environment. And, you know, we go back to, you know, like I said, other, other than the military there's nobody else that has a camaraderie that we have in, the, in this profession. And it's a great thing. And we just got to remember to, we got to look out for each other and we got to get rid of the competitiveness and the egos. And again, we, I have one, I do, and I hope I keep it in check. Um, but I will never let my ego get in the way of furthering a case or protecting this country or putting a guy in prison or jail that needs to go to prison or jail. Uh, I'll never, I'll always have my ego in check for that. And uh, I, I, I come on, you know, this is my second podcast now in uh, two weeks. And I, I like doing this stuff because we don't talk about it. We don't talk enough about big picture stuff. Right. What you do matters. And, and the reason why I liked talking to you, because I've known you for a long time, but you said something the other day and it just really clicked with me. Like 
what you do at a local level matters at a state level and can affect the national level and may affect the global level. Yep. And you have that unique combination of perspective that not a lot of people get to have. Right. And knowing, you know, being a narcotics myself and, or being a baby narc, you know, a lot of the time being in a task force, not assigned in your office, but, you know, being involved in all that, um, quickly, you know, in a small town, what you do on that Saturday night at 2 a.m. on that traffic stop with that guy that has a pound of meth does affect the rest of the state. No doubt. It can. can. Yeah. It doesn't always, but it can. And that's why I kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about NICRIC and fusion centers. And then really, um, I think the next 10 years in law enforcement is going to be a lot about domestic terrorism. No doubt. And, and we're naive you know, before COVID, we talked about fire as a weapon in Europe and how they're using fire as a weapon. And we we're seeing it in America, but not very much. Mm. We're not seeing a lot of bombings, but we're seeing more bombings that are being that we have that aren't being reported. Right. And so there's trends that, that we're not talking about enough. And so I really like your perspective about, you know, what we do matters and, and how we need to work better together. And I and the Nick Rick. Um, for those of you that are completely on board and work with it, great. But my argument is there's always things we can do better, always things we can do more, always things we can share information. And it doesn't matter where you go. You need to speak the language. You need to have someone to talk to. And, and you are the, the TLO programs are a great resource for that. <clears throat> and there's tons of success stories where the TLO program prevented or at least assisted in investigations after they happened. Okay. And, and I don't, I think it's very underutilized and, and I've been to the TLO program. I've been to the course and I still would say underutilized mm -hmm. and there's some great examples there. So I wanted you to have on, if, if you're listening to this, you're in California or anywhere and you want to learn more about Nick Rick or fusion centers, where would they go? Our website, nickrick.ca.gov. Uh, go on there, and if you're not already a member, uh, you can join the NICRIC. We have over 15,000 law enforcement members in Northern California, and we have over 3,000 private sector partners. Um, I strongly recommend going on there and looking at everything that we, we offer, the training, uh, the investigative support, uh, just the bulletins, you know, the bolos that we put out. Um, and we, ha and everybody that's putting this out that works at the NICRIC, we have subject matter experts and, uh, we're not just throwing stuff out to see if it sticks to the wall. This is information that we've got from the agencies that are participating. And I'll give you a perfect example. Um, the, the Uvalde situation, Marcus, you and I've talked about it, but I don't want to get into all the things that went wrong there. Uh, but there was some positive that our one of our analysts helped identify the subjects instagram account so forth because we have those contacts here in northern california with the private sector at instagram at facebook and so forth so um we've got a strong digital forensic evidence lab investigator 
who has found child molesters that have committed crimes in California and because he can put some facial recognition together to be a lead for another agency in New Jersey, find sexual predators, things like that. So again, we can put people, law enforcement personnel in contact with people in other states and other fusion centers. It's a network and network is a way to go in law enforcement. If you're not networking, you're behind. Why do we have the conferences that you attend, the conferences that I attend? Nobody remembers what they heard from eight to five. They remember that business card they got at seven o'clock over a blue moon or an old fashioned. And um, th- we're, we're nothing without liaison. We're not. Uh, but uh, like I said, we do, we loan equipment out uh, to agencies that don't have those resources. And, uh, but I, I ask that people go out and, and look at our website and I know there's something for every kind of law enforcement entity out there. We even have, you know, like I told you, we have public sector, we have, um, private sector entities and the law enforcement entities. So we have close to 18,000 members. And I, I really think under, under, I wouldn't say misunderstood, but under underutilized is that relationship with private sector, no. especially when it comes to domestic terrorism, active shooters. Um, I've been involved in, you know, large corporations when they fire somebody and then they start telling you the story and you're like, uh, you checked every box that we could have. Like exactly. there's some boxes you checked we didn't have on our list. Yep. And and so we got to dive deep, you know, and that's where you guys come in and go, hey, this this guy used to be down in Southern California. This guy used to be in New Jersey. Yep. And here's what he did there. Right. And um, that's stuff that hopefully you do ahead of time because when something bad happens and they do it in reverse – and they build this thing and they realize all the steps you didn't take. Exactly. And and it's a phone call. Right. And we've talked about it, you and I, over the last several weeks that, um, you know, we need to be, unfortunately, we need to be, well, unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, we're reactive more than we are proactive. And the NICRIC and all the other 80 fusion centers located nationwide can help law enforcement and public sector, meaning schools, churches, and the private sector, be thinking about what that next threat is. We could, we do threat assessments for churches and schools, and it, all it is just a matter of going on our website, becoming a member, and, and requesting assistance, and one of our team members will be on it. I, I look at all the emails that come through, and we're on it really quick. And uh, I've never seen anything so far in my year or all the times before that when I was working as an agent utilizing the fusion center for stuff, there's no one's ever dropped the ball because there's always accountability. Everything that comes in gets that box checked of this has been taken care of when it goes out. So we've had some great experiences where we have an event. We've had a big event, several big national style events in our town. And we said, Hey, this kind of guy's being squirrely. We're not really sure. We don't have a lot on them. Immediately, we get a phone call, Nick Rick, get a phone call right back. Here's what we got. Here's what you need to worry about. Here's what we're here for. We've had them come help us do site visits. Hey, here's our, here's the footprint of our major event. 
What are we missing? Yep. What are you seeing on, on social media? Nick Rick will tell you, hey, here, uh, we're seeing some of this. You might want to be careful. Here's what we think is chatter. Here's what we think is actionable intel. That's all stuff Nick Rick can give you, especially if you have these events in your town. No doubt. And, uh, you know, we support all the major events that go on in the Bay Area. We have uh, a TLO officer, an intel analyst that worked uh, the Golden State uh, Warriors finals games. Uh, we did the Sonoma uh, Raceway event back in uh, June. Um, and uh, we worked regularly the 49ers games. We worked during the Super Bowl, provided Intel support there as well. So we have a very robust program. But like I said, if you're, if you're not taking advantage of our capabilities and resources, that's on you. And that's not unique to NorCal. There's a whole right. version everywhere else. Right. And, and you need to take advantage of it. If Gilroy hasn't taught us anything. Right. It teaches you that no matter how small your town may be, how small your county is, how small your event might be, it doesn't mean that somebody's not targeting it to get their name out, to get the recognition, or to cause fear in your community. And if you, you know, there's a, I hate to say this, there's a window of opportunity right now to have those discussions where your local politicians, your city leaders, your county leaders are open to hearing what we should do better. How do we get better training and funding? Now, now's the time. No doubt. For you to examine that. And if you don't know what that is, Nick Rick's a great resource for you to reach out and go, what, what do you see in our area of operation? What, what are our challenges from Nick Rick's perspective? So Randy, thanks for being here. I know it's, uh, it's getting a little late and we're sitting outside here. Uh, we'll probably have to have one more glass of whiskey before we go. No doubt. But, uh, we'll put the notes in the podcast to click on. For those of you that are unfamiliar with how to use Google on your own, we'll make it easy. You just click on the note and, uh, it'll take you there. So thank you, Randy. Look forward to, uh, seeing you again soon. And that's it. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.